It's episode 23 of the Improv London podcast with this week's guest, Kit Proudfoot. This ain't gonna be easy. Welcome to episode 23. I met Kit outside the Miller and uh, the famous Miller in London. We talked about improv, we talked about acting, we talked about Meisner, we talked about being a DJ, we talked about being a model, and we talked about being a basketball player. One of the other things we do uh, also learn in this podcast is the, uh, the debt, both artistically and financially, that Kit owes to Louisa Omelan. Anyway, if I find out more, carry on listening. Kit Proudfoot, yes. welcome to the Improv London podcast. I'm so happy, I'm so honoured to be here, <laughs> I can't even explain. Well, I'm very happy for you to be here, we should do the yeah. who, what, where to and start can, with. And yeah. I'll, no, but also, before we do the who, what, where to start with, we can also just pre-start with saying, I can't think of a, a nicer soul to be doing this podcast well, than your good self. Thank you very much, I feel very much the same yeah. way. It's so, so great, I'm really happy that you're doing it. I'm really, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm happy that I'm doing it as well. So, is it who first? Was who the first? Oh, of the who, we what, can, where? We can do it. Do okay, it in any who? order you like. Okay, well, I'm, I'm Kit. Hello, Kit. Yeah. I'm Stuart. I don't know how else to define myself. Define yourself. That's my first question. <laughs> how, do, how do you define yourself? God, I think, I don't know. I define myself as an open open person. I try and be on, as honest as possible. Um, other than that, really, I'm tall. Yeah, <laughs> Listener, yeah. you may not be able to see this, yeah. uh, but he's tall. Yeah. He's a tall man. I'm not improv tall, but I'm like normal, because <laughs> you, you get a lot of big lads in improv. Do you reckon? I see a lot of big lads. I mean, I think you get a lot of extremes. Ah. You get a lot of people from the fringes of society, whether they're, whether they're tall or particularly short or whatever it is. But you're gonna get you're gonna get the fringes, really. You know, more so in improv than other art forms. But you know, you know what I'm saying though. Sometimes you see like a really normal guy doing improv, like right, and you're like, hold on a minute. <laughs> Who and let he this guy in? in? somewhere else. And then oh, there's nothing worse when he's good as well. You're just like, hold on a minute. Why are you good at this? You what? could be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, you don't need this. Leave we it. we yeah. need this. Yeah. This is all we've got. Don't so, take yeah. it away from us with your. Yeah. Books. yeah, exactly. But I have to say, I'm like, I'm on, I'm basically the, the things that nudge me into not particularly normal. I'm almost huge. I'm like, I'm six five, so I'm almost massive. Um, thankfully, not completely massive. And no, people don't like come up to me and say you're tall that much. They, you know, people forget I'm tall. If anything, right? Everyone forgets I'm tall. But I'm going on a bit about it too much, really. But like, I'm just a bit taller, that's all I'm saying. Um, and then the Geordiness. There's, um, yeah. So those are the things. But I'm not like the most normal. I saw a normal guy doing improv here once. I just left. <laughs> it's the only uh, genuinely legitimate reaction if you see that sort of thing. Well, we should say where we are then. Yes, where we are. We're outside the Miller, one of the homes of improv in oh, London. God, it's such an important place. This place. It really is imbued. I, sometimes I don't know if the people who that work here know how important the Miller is to some, some people right, and yeah, like the yeah. development of themselves and stuff yes. but it really is for me such an important place like it's such a it, I feel I feel like there's almost like a golden era going on at the moment 
you don't know if it's going to be for two years, it's going to be for five years, it's going to be for ten years. But like, the Miller will forever be remembered as a place of many laughs, <laughs> many joyful moments. I love the Miller so much. Yes, I very much agree. Uh, so that's who, uh, what. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. That's good. We've yeah. established the who, what, where. Yeah, yeah, is that the whole thing? I think so. <laughs> I mean, some people don't even think we should be establishing that. Really? We should just be, you know, establishing the relationship um, or well, the emotion of the scene. Well, to be honest, with the what, we could we could go a lot deeper into that. Yeah, let's do that then. But you can't force it. No. <laughs> you can't force it. You just got to see what comes of it. Yeah. Was this what? Was this what were you were told with the, the first five minutes? They said that you've got to. Uh, You've got to get the, the who, what and where down. <laughs> no, it's just improv. improv. Some improv classes that I've done that have emphasised that particular approach. Oh, there's nothing wrong than a purist. <laughs> no, is, this, is this the co- main complaint you're getting? The main complaint you're getting is... I don't know who not, you are. I yeah, don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know where you are. Yes, you're not establishing the reality. You need to establish a strong reality as soon as the podcast starts. Yes. Or I'm turning it off. Yeah. And if that's the case, that person's turned off. But we... All right, we we so can do that. we're going to establish the reality, and then the first strange thing that happens, we're just going to hit that and hit yeah. that and hit that and hit yes. that for the rest of the hour. Yes, I've read the UCB manual. I know, <laughs> and it is a valid approach. Yeah, it's I'm a valid not approach, big time. Necessarily, it's my approach, but it yeah. is a valid approach. No, it is. It's a very valid approach. Yeah. <laughs> what should we talk about first? You're a man of oh. many colours. Yeah, I am. You do am. many things. <laughs> I am. I can tell you what I've just been doing right now. Tell, tell me what you've just been doing now. So I'm doing my first ever lead role in a theatre production. Wow, proper yeah. theatre with like, scripts and everything. Scripts. Oh. We're wearing clothing, there's um, furniture, um, there is uh, accents that I'm failing at for the most part. <laughs> I've noticed that that's a big thing with accents. It's like I really go in strong. Like the first three words will be perfect, received pronunciation. And by the, th- by the, third, by the third word, word, it's like, your mum! It's just like, it couldn't get more Geordie. It couldn't get more Geordie. But yes, yeah, so, so, so I'm doing that at the moment. I've just come from that now. I've just been doing, um, basically, we, we open on Saturday night. It's a play called Hard Cross. And it's written by this phenomenal young playwright who I've, I'm so excited to have met. When she's, she's so young, it's ridiculous. She's like three or four years old. Um, and she's, she's written this play called Hard Cross. Her name Jack. Yes. Uh, Domin- oh God, Dominica VC. She's, like, she's wonderful. A proper, like, I can see her being a big timer. And she's a great director as well. Really good, really incredibly creative artist. So I'm doing this play with um, with a wonderful cast of people. It's the first time I've ever done like the lead in a play. I've done parts in plays. I've done like little bits. I've done. Um, I did an immersive last year. I might have told you about called Neverending Night, which is at Waterloo Vaults. Oh right. Yeah, which is phenomenal. Talk about that in a second. Yes. Oh my, because it's so. It was basically like improv, but with no sense of humour. <laughs> and I'll explain why. I'll come, come back to it. But um, like the opposite, and rightfully so, by the way, because it was the end of the world. But, um, but yes, yeah, so I've been doing that. That's what I'm basically up to, for the main part right now. It's taken over. What? It's such a challenge. Such a challenge. So what inspired you to do proper acting? Well, I have to say, I mean, it's kind of. It's always been there. I mean, the big, the big thing with me was when I was younger, um, I always wanted to do it. But due to an insane overflow of testosterone, yeah. um, sports became the be all and end all. From, from 
like it became my true focus, probably from age 13, but I was involved in sports when I was like six. So I was like a sports guy, basically basketball mainly, but also rugby. Um, and the whole idea was to go pro with those things. Ended up at like academies and like um, oh, wow. like like semi-pro teams and all of this kind of thing. I was meant to go to the States for basketball and all this kind of thing. And I, 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 I would, I'm, I've got that thing where I'm like, you don't know this at the time because you're testosterone-fueled, confident, overconfident teen self, if you have that streak in yourself, which I certainly did, truly believes you're going to be 100%. There's no question that you're going to be a professional sportsman. So all this extra work, these six hours of training every day, that you know, the, the weights at two o'clock in the morning and then like getting back up at six to do um, handling drills and shooting 600 shots a day, like, this is, I mean, beyond a joke ridiculousness. If I just applied one tenth of that to learning the piano, yeah. oh my lord, my <laughs> life would be so different. If I applied even like a sprinkling of that to like just, I don't know, I couldn't Google what improv was, but just like, I don't know, f- find out what like acting stuff I could, but it just, you know, it wasn't there. And, and obviously I was in the north as well, so it's like, it's probably a, a bad thing to say, but I never had a good experience of drama in the North. Really? No, like I really, really didn't. And it got to the point where I could have had, but by that point I was 15, 16, and I had an amazing teacher called Mr. Fry who was trying his damnedest to like pull me in to do the choir, pull, pull me in to do drama. And I was just like, no, 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 no. Because I was doing this, I was doing my schoolwork and six hours of training every day, then, you know. So it wasn't going to happen, but I was too set in my ways. But, um, Essentially, I never got a chance. I never got a chance to do any training, any drama, any anything, you know. And as a result, I never thought I could. Um, and then it wasn't until in my early twenties when I was um, modelling, which sh- should discount me from improv straight away. But, like, I was doing that in my. Don't worry, I, w- I waited for it all to wear off before I came to improv classes. So I am. Um, <laughs> How did you get into modelling? Um, I don't interrupt your flow. How did I get into modelling? God, um, how old was I? I just I was at a college when I was 17 and the hairdressers wanted me to be in a catwalk show with like three streaks of like blonde streaks in my head. like when I say streaks it sounds like I'm saying like highlights I'm not I'm saying if you think of like a section like six inches long two inches wide of blonde in brown hair and then a spike but then a shaved on one side then like then like you know spiked on the other side like honestly like real forward thinking I don't know what they were thinking forward to but they were thinking forward <laughs> like real extreme so I did that at first and then there was this um, then there was this TV show which again it was on channel 4 it was called Model Behaviour and basically the, this TV show came up and um, it, uh, I don't know the, 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 all the hairdressers and some of my mum's friends were like Kit should do this TV show so I went to it and it was mad it was such an experience and um, it, it's what cured me of my sports depression. Really? Yeah, because basically what happened was, I got to 18, I was at the National Sports Academy, right, playing basketball, right? And I had um, offers from, this is the weirdest thing, I have to tell you this, right? So, right, in, in the States, I have to kind of go back a little bit, but in the States, right, if you want to play, let's say you're a basketball player like I was, right? And you, you want to get into college, right? The college sports over there is huge business. It's as big as normal sports everywhere else, you know? Huge business. Not huge business for the players, Maya. They don't get paid anything, which is like but millions and millions of pounds for the universities, whether it's merchandise, tickets, whatever. So 
So basically, I was I wanted to be in that system. I wanted to get across there, get paid nothing to play to you know to tens of thousands of people to develop myself, so I could inevitably um, become a, a supreme professional sportsman, right? So. I couldn't do that. They've got enough six foot five white guys in America, right? All of the coaches' sons are six foot five white guys. As weird as it sounds, six foot five is actually a weird height in, in basketball. Yeah. Um, anything from six four to six 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 seven is what's called a tweener, right? <laughs> I've always been a bit of a tweener. <laughs> yeah. So I was. Um, so at this, at this, should we wait for the, we'll wait for the helicopter? We'll wait for the helicopter. It's very loud. It's very loud, London. Is anybody yeah, stopped? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think it doesn't matter. Yeah. Is it, is it okay? Yeah. Cool. So, I don't think there's a lot of stereo on this now. Oh, because okay. we're sitting the other way around. I don't think that's going to. Oh, happen. okay. <laughs> I think we're all right. I've changed to the other side of the thing. Yes. People are going to be like, "Hold on a second, I thought the other guy was Jordy." <laughs> um, so, um, so, so yes. Yeah, so basically, I was what was referred to as a tweener. So yeah. I wasn't going to get um, scouted, as it were, to go and play in American universities. I thought that was the only reason. <laughs> it's also because I wasn't quite good enough. You never know. If I got so, if I got sore somehow by every single university in the States, one of them might have went, hold on a second, he looks quite good. Theoretically that could work. But it's before the age of the internet, I couldn't afford that many VHS tapes, right? <laughs> so all I, all I had to go on was like, you know, if my coaches invited someone over, you know, they'd see me play or whatever. So, so you were making VHS tapes or tapes of you weren't no, making couldn't it couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford one. But right? that's, that would have been if, you, if, if money had been no object. That yeah, would have been the thing to do. You'd have been filmed have. playing basketball. You'd send it out to American yeah, I universities. Suppose, I think so. I mean, that, that's a, that's like that's the only option I had. But I couldn't afford the VHS tapes. I, I couldn't afford food. <laughs> I was just lived on pasta and tuna. So like it was literally all I lived on at that at that time. So basically, basketball didn't. Um, I, I didn't end up going. But not before I got offered high schools, right? So instead of going to university, I would have to pretend I was less educated than I am. It was, it's so weird, the situation over there. I don't know if this is still how it works, but I'd be, so at 18, you were already, at 17 actually, you were already finished what at that time was the equivalent of the US high school system is. So if you go into upper sixth form, you're, you're, if you finish first year of sixth form, beg your pardon, um, you are now overqualified for American University. Right. So, if you finish first year, then second year, then try and go to high school in America to do like, you know, the last year, be a year older than everyone else, yeah. you're way too qualified. Oh, no. So, from an educational standpoint, you can't do it. So, I'd have to lie about my, um, about my education. That's number one. But I got five offers and the idea was that I'd go and live with a family, right, and they would have to adopt me legally right i would no longer be my mum and dad's child and and i'm not saying they couldn't say to their friends they couldn't say to the government they couldn't go oh well we're only doing this so he can join the family so he can pay for the high school so he might that then get seen by an ohio university because it was in ohio they couldn't say that they'd have to go yeah he's no longer our son right but but horrible teen single-minded me was like yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. Let's do that. Like, what's everyone's What's everyone's problem? What's wrong with you? So, so hello, Prabs. Oh, get in here, pal. Prabs, nice to see you, pal. Nice to see you. Can join us. 
<laughs> we yeah. are recording Kit's interview for the podcast. Oh, oh no, Pam's going get in. He's already been on it. Oh, okay. Oh, You're sorry. more than welcome to I, sit I, with I us. No you can you, have you got a guitar? Can you just play a guitar in the I background? <laughs> you're more allowed to come sit with us. I'm just, yeah. you know. Oh, I'm, you guys do it, man. Right. I don't want to be. No, man, you're part of the community. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to slip out slowly. Okay. We will see. You're performing tonight. Yeah, you, you guys perform. I'm doing the lights tonight. Oh, nice. No, I'm not. I'm not. Not tonight. Not tonight. Yeah. Just doing this. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, have a good podcast. I'm going to go. We will okay. catch up with you soon. See you later. Uh, see you later. Sorry. That's a nice little interval. Um, so, so yeah, so basically, um, in my head, I was like, yeah, of course, of course I'm going to do this. Now, I was meant to go to an Ohio high school, join this quite well-off family, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to afford all this business. But I was, I was going to do it. Then one, one night, I had a nightmare that my mum was crying, and then I was, I'd upset my mum. And then I woke up that morning and I was like, oh my God, what in God's name am I? Like, what on earth? Why am, what am I doing? Like, how can I, how can I be so cold? But this shows you like the level of like how unbelievably blind, blindly, narrow-mindedly committed I was to this thing. Like, and um, to the point where it was like, that could have been a hor- horrible thing to do. Yeah. Now, the weirdest thing was, I was one of five who were offered this this thing. So there was four other guys at my academy who were all offered to go to these high schools, right? Get adopted. Yeah. The other four did it. Wow. All uh, three out of those four had to come back to the UK because they didn't get picked up by university. One of them got picked up for, for like long jump or something. <laughs> it's not the strangest thing. Yeah. So I really hope that I was. I, ho- I hope I'm wrong about this, and then it and it turned out beautifully and whatever. I know one of them got went across there and he he built a really nice life for himself. He became a coach. I think he met his wife and all that. Lovely, wonderful, amazing. So I hope it was a lot nicer than I thought. But I had to just pull out. Anyway, this takes us back to how I got into modelling. Modelling came a lot. I I made this decision. Then I was like, oh well, that's it. I my entire dream that I've been working on for the last however many years is gone. I won't be a professional sportsman now. Um, there was no other opportunity for me to develop in the UK. I couldn't go to the next thing. There was no next thing. So I was done, you know. So that's a mourning period. At exactly that same moment, this whole modelling thing came along. So I was blinded by the lights of like London and this opportunity and this excitement and working with these creatives and, you know, even though as a model you're in the middle of it, but you're still a bystander. You're doing nothing creative. Um, I mean, there's an argument to be said that at some level or in some, you can be, you have a creative input, but we're talking about a nominal, nominal, tiny, barely existent fraction of, of the industry. You, you basically work in advertising, but your advertising work is done nearby people who are creative. Right. Or with people that know people that know people that are creative. It's advertising, you know. So that's how I got into that. And when I first did that, um, that's when I started doing auditions for adverts. And I started, um, I, I got offers for like to do like a film, like a, a mini film or whatever it was. And I just blagged it all. And I knew, I always knew there was like an element of me that was like, wanted to perform, you know. Um, and it was in there, but it was so like, it was based on nothing really, other than my, how I was with people. Right. Do you know what I mean? So how I was with people, like if I, if I was at a party or if I was at a, uh, you know, out with some friends or I was at the park or whatever, I'd always, I'd always perform. I know it, sound, it sounds hellish, it sounds like the worst thing ever. Like it sounds like, oh God, this sounds like the worst guy ever. You know? <laughs> when you say you'd perform, what do you mean? I would, I wouldn't get up and say, can everyone please be seated? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Ladies I, and gentlemen, yeah, I have uh, yeah. a little something I prepared yeah, for I you. Yeah, I don't mean that at all. I don't mean. I wouldn't do like a one-man show, you know. Uh, you know. Do you like magic? I got magic. Do you like puppets? Yeah. I got puppets. Yeah, I, I would just. My, the performance was, and I didn't know I was performing. I thought it was my personality. I, told, I thought I was. I thought it was just who I was. Um, for years, I thought this. But what I would do is, I would. I was constantly trying to manage the environment. Right. So, if making the environment better meant that I needed to make everyone happy by laughing or whatever, yeah, then yeah. I would do that. Yeah. But if making the environment better was going over to the corner and speaking to that person who's on their own because they look a bit sad, I'd do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it looked as though those people, two people would have a fight, I'd diffuse that. So I was constantly using performative energy, you know. And, um, and what I then got into was two things. I basically got into presenting you know and I started getting like offers and stuff for presenting um, which barely went anywhere like I, I got some like um, offers with like major um, some like auditions and almost got like big jobs on like uh, channel 4 and stuff like that and I was like always like a hair's breadth from it and rightfully so because I was I, the only reason I wanted to do presenting is so I could basically say look mum I've got a, I, I'm doing it you know the other job never did that for me because I've been a DJ now for like 10, 11 years. I could never say to my mum like, oh, I'm playing at this good club tonight. She's like, what? <laughs> and I say my mum, my mum, you hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm using my mum to mean like everyone back home. Right, yeah. So I basically said to everyone back in Newcastle, like, you know, look, I'm doing it. Yeah, I yeah. came here, I did this thing. That's honestly the only reason I wanted a presenting job. It's come around to it now that I, I like what presenting is and I'm like I would like to do that as well I'd like to do it as a, I'd like to do it as a job but it's not like a passion you know yeah and then from that I was just like to be honest for years I was just crippled by fear because I what I called it at the time is circling the prey I used to think of it like acting is like well I can do presenting I can DJ right. I can do this I can do that I can do that but that big thing I'm not allowed to do that right and what I used to say when I finally kind of cracked it was I was waiting for permission to come from an external source. I was waiting for, I was genuinely waiting for Morgan Freeman to arrive at my door. <laughs> and, and like Morgan Freeman arrive at my door and just say, good, you have to act now. You know? Come on. You know, I mean, that's the worst impression ever. But I was genuinely waiting for that to happen. I was waiting for like someone to come and like, and not just and not just come and tell me like please do that. I'm, I'm, I mean like actually get me like come and get me yeah. and take me to the fully formed thing. Yeah. And that never happened. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that was going to happen. Never happened. And I didn't know what improv was. So to, to, to get to get into improv and acting at the same time that was like major research mode and then all of a sudden I realised that all of my favourite people in the US mainly whether it's like Amy Poehler Tina Fey you know like um, oh god I could, I could literally like list a million of them but all of these all of these people whether it's even going back to like you know Bill Murray you know oh god they're all improvisers I was like what that's a thing yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry <laughs> I did not know this and then I was and then slowly but surely and then that's how I and then I kind of came into acting and improv at the same time so that's how I, how I got into it so what yeah. was the first improv that you did then well actually it's really cool um, but actually the first class I ever did was with um, do you know uh, Louisa Emilion 
Oh yeah. Yes. Oh my God. She's amazing. Yes. So basically, she was just doing these classes, um, and uh, <laughs> you thought. I, I, I want to learn improv, but I want someone that's going to give me the sort of the Beyonce perspective. <laughs> Beyonce approach. Someone who would know yeah. what would Beyonce do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I judge every bit of improv teaching on its fierceness alone. So I was just like, <laughs> what's going to be the fiercest method? So, so I basically went to the old classic, like basement of a pub, paid like 100 quid or however much it was. Oh, God, do you know what? I don't even think I've paid for it yet. <laughs> I've just realised this now. Awkward. If Louisa wants yet. to get in contact, uh, I've got oh. Kit's contact details. Tweet me. Tweet him. Because that would make me look cool. Would um, <laughs> you be prepared yeah, to yeah. pay for the course it's all, it's for almost, a tweet? Yeah, <laughs> it's almost worth it. It, it, it is actually way worth it. Get a quick get a tweet. But yes, she was, and she was wonderful. Yes. And what and what was she so amazing? Because it was like first class. What she was amazing at, which I then have seen done by all the great teachers I've worked with since, since is getting you from closed off, scared to look silly, to looking sillier than you ever have, ever, disgustingly silly. <laughs> Getting you from no, that note to 60, the way in which she did it, with like in the most beautifully sensitive, but full, like progressive, wonderful way. Yeah, yeah. So that was basically my first ever class. Now, I didn't end up finishing that course, and that's why I didn't pay for it. But, um, <laughs> and I apologized and she said it was okay. But I'd still love a tweet. Uh, but I didn't end up paying for that course. But when I did actually eventually get round to saying I really want to do this course again, um, I, 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 I contacted Louisa, you know, Facebook or whatever. And, she, and I was like, are you still doing the course? I'd really love to do it. Um, I'm so sorry about last time. Ah! <laughs> uh, and, and she said, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, but check out Hoopla, look for Steve Rowe, uh, game changer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. course of my life changed forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, we mentioned before this immersive theatre yes. in Waterloo. Tell me more about that. Yeah, okay, so basically what happened with this was, I've also done, because um, I've kind of, uh, one thing I've done since starting improv is I've jumped from side to side, right? I've basically, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not just doing improv, I'm, I have been trying to le like learn acting at the same time. One thing I found really troublesome for me, because of the other things I've got going on, is I haven't been able to do both at the same time consistently. Right. So yeah, I can come and I can do a jam session of improv while I'm doing a, a play or while I'm doing an acting course or, or, or vice versa. I can go and do a little acting thing if I'm doing an improv course or if I'm, or if I'm working a lot with a team. I can do you know a little bit, but I can't do both of them at the same time continuously, right? So. I was doing um, a lot of Meisner training, and this is another. This is honest, honestly. I'm so happy that I found Steve, for example, and Maria as well. Because obviously I worked Maria on the beginners course, but finding uh, Steve with with improv was huge. He was my Morgan Freeman at the door. Wow. Even though I had to get in the room, he was my Morgan Freeman <laughs> at the door. The and Maria was as well. Like you know, hoopla in general. It was such a like a wonderful atmosphere to begin, especially, you know. But then with acting, I went from coach to teacher to whatever, to fucking guru, <laughs> right? And I, I found it all painful, hellish, especially from like being a, you know, a Geordie and loving comedy and doing improv and then people being so serious and like, and so like awful. And I felt a lot of these guys had God complexes. Then I found a, um, a wonderful chap called Dominic Kelly. And Dominic Kelly became my uh, Meisner teacher. So Dominic works uh, with Alex, and they they run uh, along with a bunch of other creatives a thing called the Salon Collective, and they work out of mainly the Cockpit Theatre in Marylebone. And they um, they're like a Meisner school. 
and Emma Eisner company of actors. So they do a lot of Shakespeare, they do like do many, many different things. But I basically did, learned, I went through the whole course of Meisner teaching. I don't know if you know about Emma Eisner. Tell me but about Meisner, Meisner basically um, worked with uh, Stanislavski and Stella. I, I'm going to absolute butcher this, but I'm going to try my absolute best because I've, I've, I've been told this. I've been told this. I've been told this at the start of every Meisner course. I should know it beautifully by now. <laughs> so basically, Meisner was um, he was a musician. He was a pianist, and basically he came from that background. But then he studied acting with uh, Stanislavski, um, and basically um, Meisner then formulated from Stanislavski, the Russian teaching, he formulated his own style of teaching in New York, okay? And basically what it was, it's based on a number of things, and essentially what it, what it tries to do is it through the medium of a thing called rep, as in repetition, it almost sharpens your ability to get to an emotion. And the best way you can even think of it is it's almost, it's almost like molecular fake it till you make it. Right. So if I need to get angry with you, I go and I get angry at you. Yeah. By doing that, maybe I'm just about maybe I'm gonna get angry with you. Yeah. If I wanna get sad, maybe I have to get so angry with you that I'm over the other side. Ah, right? Wow. That I then I break down. Yes. If I wanna get so happy with you, then yeah. I just get so happy with you. Yeah. But maybe then from just going to it, you know, now that on that on its own, you're just putting all this energy to you. I need something back, right? Yes. So what you do is a thing called rep. So it'll start by going, you're well, you must have heard this before, you would have heard this, you're wearing a lilac shirt. Yes. And you'd repeat back to me, I'm wearing a lilac I'm shirt. I'm wearing a lilac shirt. You're wearing a lilac shirt. I'm wearing a lilac shirt. You're wearing a lilac shirt. I'm wearing a lilac shirt. Now immediately you're starting to feel emotions here, whether yes. it's uncomfortable or you're angry at the fact that I picked on your shirt and I didn't pick your hair or I didn't pick your, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. You actually start to feel something. It's so quick. Yes. Like, now, it could start with like, and, and sometimes it does start with like, I don't like your shoes. I'm saying that because I can't see them, so you know it's not yeah. true. Right? I'm sure I love them. But um, but in this, it's very safe space and all these things. But you do this rep, and what it does is, it's a very safe space to sharpen this, um, your instincts. So if I need to get angry, it's, it almost becomes Pavlovian. It's almost like, I don't need to go, talk about your shirt for 10 minutes and yeah, then talk yeah. about the fact that you're making me feel uncomfortable for 10 minutes and then talk I'm just like boom yeah, I'm there yeah, right yeah. so Meisner Meisner basically formulated this thing and you could think of it as his background as, as a pianist um, helped him formulate this way of almost it's almost like emotionally doing scales right Do you yeah, see what yeah, I mean yeah, that's how I quite yeah, often yeah, think yeah. about it you've got to work on your scales so you've got to work on your rep as if you're an actor so it's, it gives you this set of tools so I did this training with, uh, with Dominic and uh, by the way, I can't remember what you asked me to get to this point. Yes, I've remembered it now. Okay, I've got it right. so, 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 so by working with Dominic and doing Meisner, um, I found myself a part in the same way that, you know, I know perhaps when he walks over and I know other people, you know, doing improv, part of like a Meisner community of actors. Wow. Now, when this happened, basically, there was this, there was this amazing play being put on by this, uh, these wonderful people. Like, I think it was formulated by two people, um, Bonnie Adair and Libby Brockman. I think, I think Libby Brockman came up with the idea. Libby Brockman's just gonna be a superstar. She's like, she's went back to Australia for a while, but she's, she's gonna be big time, like in, in, at some point. She's so wonderfully driven and professional uh, an actress. So anyway, so, so Libby had this idea and they basically put, formulated it and all that kind of stuff. I didn't hear about it, I didn't hear anything about it, blah, 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 blah. But this is where it's quite nice, because this is where the improv comes in. So what the show they were putting together was, it was called Never Ending Night. So Meisner has thought of it as an improv-based acting technique. All right, didn't right? Know that. 
Now, not improv how we know it specifically, but it's improvising. Mm. So if you don't know the lines yet, you get to know your character by just saying whatever you want, repeating whatever you want. Mm. And then slowly but surely, you find your way to the character and you'll learn the lines at the same time. And then you might just throw the line at you. So my, 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 my line to you might be, I hate you. If you don't believe me when we're in rehearsal, you say, you hate me. You don't believe me, so you repeat it back to me. You hate and then, me? Yeah, I hate you. And you when you feel that I'm actually telling the truth, right, yeah, you yeah. say your line. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, wow. Right. Yeah. So all of this was going on in the rehearsal process for Never Ending Night. But they needed someone to work in the rehearsals with the other actors that wasn't in the play. Right. So they asked me to come into rehearsals. They needed someone who was Meisner trained, who understood the process, yes. but who wasn't in the play. As, as Libby put it to me, we've got enough, we've got enough tall white guys. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I was like, the whole world does, I think. You know, I was like, I was like yeah, I, you should hear that more, I think. You know what I mean? Uh, I was like, I can't get upset at that. <laughs> this is the first time, this is the first time I've, uh, you know, where it hasn't worked in my favor, I think. So, so there we go. I am. Um, she, but she invited me in and then the most wonderful thing happened one rehearsal passed went really well I was useful they asked me to come back to another rehearsal another one another one fourth rehearsal the end of the rehearsal they were like we've created a part for you we want you to be in the play wow yeah and it was such a nice way for it to come yeah. about you know it was such I mean, a that's nice practically thing Morgan Freeman coming and sending yes. you to, to act isn't yeah, it yeah 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 so, uh, it, do you know what in a way you could, you're right, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's the real life reality version of that. Because I had to show up. Yeah, I had yeah, to show up, yeah, I had to try yeah, hard, yeah. I had to train in Meisner, I had to do all yes, these different yes. things. And it, was, and it was just a wonderful little part because it was, it was what you made of it, you know. It was uh, Never Ending Night, the play, it's the, in the, the one in Waterloo Vault. It was, it was an improvised play to, to, a, to a huge extent because it was immersive. Oh, right. So when, when, the, when, the, um, when the audience come in, they're walking through. You don't know if the audience is going to come up to you and say, "Where should I put my coat?" Yeah, yeah, and where this is a dystopian world. <laughs> I'm like, why have you still got your coat? We need to, uh, you know, disinfect that or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That's basically yeah, the yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And I was like, we had like plants in the crowd, and it was my job. I, oh, no, God, the funniest thing happened, right? So basically, I had like a hat on and full army gear. And, um, and a hood up because it, we were meant to be like in um, disinfected, like you know, like um, ET and then they yeah. through the tube. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, it was meant to be like a virus outside that had killed 90% of the world's population. Real lovely stuff, right? So basically, I was I ended up being the muscle. Right? <laughs> now, no one ever thinks of me as the muscle ever. But the reason was, and this is the funniest thing, it's because you couldn't see my hair. And I realized. <laughs> It's, I realised that if you can't see my hair yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm dressed like that, I, I look like quite nails. Yeah. And they were like, Kit's got to deal with that. I'm like, what, me? Have you seen my hair? I'm like, oh no, you obviously haven't. I've got, like, I've got a hat on. So start calling you Tank. Yeah, exactly. So I was like the brute. So I was like, I was having to pick these plants up that were in the crowd because they were infected and carry them out. Oh God, it, it was really heavy. Yeah. At the end of it every night, I had to like lie down and just like get it out of my system. It was yeah. a very heavy experience. But phenomenal, and and improv played such a phenomenally huge part. I sent Steve, I sent Steve a, a big email saying thank you because I thought it was so massively down to him that you know yeah. I was able to do it and you know uh, or that I was able to even get in it. Yeah. And it was nice. It was at my first. It was my first play. So, uh, so yeah, that was that was never ending night. That it was wonderful. Yeah, crazy experience. So, how did you get into DJ? 
Well, DJing, because I should warn you, I'm going to be uh, playing some tunes tonight. Oh, you got some bangers. So you might, uh, you might just want to like check me out for a yeah. few little tips. Oh you know? my gosh! Uh, no, I, I love. Are you playing off Steve's iPod? And I'm playing off mine. Oh, oh bloody mine. hell, pal! I'm playing this myself. I didn't realise you were a pro. There you are. <laughs> I ain't no intermediate. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, uh, oh God, I love Steve's iPod. It's got some absolute huge. <laughs> let me be your fantasy and all that kind of uh, tune on it. Set you free. Well, That's I'm mainly going uh, 80s synth pop and yeah. 70s funk. Oh God, we need it. Because it's, it's, yeah. I'm bringing the party. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's my job. I see. That's to, my job. You have to. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, I'll stay. I'll stick around just to. Yeah. Just to. You know, you got to see. Learn a few things. You got to see what's happening on the scene. You know? <laughs> that is essentially why I got into doing the yeah. lights. It's yeah. So why you I got can... into improv? <laughs> it was a long-term thing with improv, yeah. but I really just wanted to play my music to large groups yeah. of people. Yeah. Well, but no, without the pressure. Of... Yeah. All right. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> 25. <laughs> to some people. Yeah. yeah. Also, without a dance floor. Yeah. So there's no That's pressure what... if nobody dances. Yeah. It's like, you know. Yeah, into the backs as well. Yeah. 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 But you've got to have, yeah, you've got to have a dream, man. You've got to have a dream. But yeah, so how, how, basically, I think it was in part it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. It was in, in in a way it was a thing that got a bit carried away. So basically, my dad was a major record collector, um, and it was his pride and joy. You know, he'd, he'd alphabetize the whole collection of his vinyl, and he'd have, you know, God, I mean, he must have had at least. 40,000 records at one point. Like, I mean, it was beyond a joke. And he'd alphabetize them by artist name. Then he'd realize that he'd prefer it to be alphabetized by the album name. <laughs> so he'd start again. And then it'd be by color or something. Or at least that's what seemed to be going on. So um, so I always, I always used to think to myself, like, music collections in homes are normal, very normal. So, and this was up until the time I was about, you know, 23, 24, going to people's houses. I'd go to, you know, back in Newcastle, I'd go to friends' houses and I'd be like, this is great, this is great, but where does your dad keep his records? <laughs> and they'd be like, what do you mean? And sometimes they might take me to like a trunk and they'd be like, well, these are his cassettes. I'm like, oh, fantastic, but where are his records? <laughs> and, um, and, I'd, and, and then, and they'd be like, well, there is none. And then I'd go home, I'd be like, mum, like, my friend wouldn't show me his dad's records. Why is that? You know, and I, honest to God, thought everyone had that. You know, yeah. I thought it was a totally normal thing to have a have a like a library of jazz in every house. I thought it was like totally government issue. Right? <laughs> so it was very normal for me. And um, and I'd start buying things when I was like nine. I remember when I was like when I was nine. Actually, I let just flat out left the house when I was nine. I think I was nine, maybe ten. I just flat out left the house. I'd collected my uh, my dinner money for the week. I didn't eat each day. Um, and I'd, I just collected all. I'd hide it behind the bread bin so I wouldn't take it to school. And then on Saturday morning, I just left the house and went and bought a Bjork, the Bjork album. I mean, I was like nine. What am I doing listening to Bjork? Do you know what I mean? Like, it was quite an experimental record debut. I mean, it might have had its all so quiet on it, but the rest of it was pretty experimental music. You for know what I mean? For a nine-year-old, certainly, yeah. So, and then I just come back. I thought that was totally normal for me to do that by myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was always a collector. And then it got to the point when I was, um, when I was 17, 18, and I never liked the idea of the centre of attention thing. I was already in centre of attention just from like being the loudest one. So what, I never did it for that because it's a bit of a, it's, a, it's not really true the centre of attention. You're like, you, you, uh, the reason I did it really was a, a, a number of things. One is, I really like having a reason to be there. Yes. I really like that. Yes. I like having a reason to be in the room. Yes. I like having a reason to say, yes. 
I'm, I've, I've got to just go and do this now. Yes. I like having a reason to, a time that I have to arrive, a time yes. that I have to leave, because everything else freaks me out so much, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. because it takes up so, my, so much of my energy, because I have to be that, 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 that performer person. Yes. So having a reason to be there, that was all very good. Secondly, I'd collected all this music and I was like, it would be an incredible justification, you know, to, to be, if I was playing this, that would, and I got paid, yes. that would mean all this money that I've, all this music that I've collected and paid all this money for and all this music I know I will collect and pay all that money for, it's monetized. Yes. I feel okay now, I'm allowed, I'm allowed to do it. So, so that was another massive part of it as well. I was, uh, uh, that was a huge part of it. But the way I got into it, I couldn't get gigs. Because you can't get good at DJing by any other way than DJing. Yes. So like stand-up. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the good thing about stand-up is there's open mics. Ah, yes. Which, don't get me wrong, are the most awful things in the world. <laughs> but there's no open decks. Right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you have to, you have to turn yourself into a con man. Right. You have to be a great DJ, yeah. even if you've never DJed. You have to lie. <laughs> but no one was believing me. <laughs> Rightfully so. They could see through the facade. So what I did is I got myself a job at a club as a marketing manager. All right. <laughs> then worked into my job description that I would be the guy that booked the DJs. Uh, right. Then I would book the DJs for five hours. But then I'd tell them, look, I'm booking you for five hours. I'm paying you for five hours. But you only have to do three and a half because I'll do the first hour and a half for you. Nice. They were appreciative of, the, of that because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good little situation. Yeah. So in turn, they would they would help me and teach me how to DJ. Oh wow! Yeah. That's amazing. So so uh, and I was terrible, you know. So what what would happen was I would do three months, and then all of a sudden I'd have this epiphany of how terrible I was, like how truly awful I was. <laughs> but that's part of the that's part of the learning. Hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So three months would pass, I'd go, oh my God, I'm terrible. So I'd go back to bedroom playing. So I'd go back to bedroom and I'd watch and I'd listen and I'd learn. Do three months, then I'd come back and I was a little, I was a touch better. Yeah, yeah. But then three months would pass and I'm like, I can't believe how bad I am. I, I don't deserve, this is actually, it's not that it's um, dishonest of me in my job to be booking myself. It's also unfair to these human souls. <laughs> these human souls that have to listen to me do this, you know? These poor things that are like turning up and spending their money and like <laughs> spending their night and spending their time on earth listening to me get all the levels wrong. Right. So I'd quit again, right? Then I'd do it again. And then I was kind of, I'd worked really, really hard to get the basic technical elements in hand. And then I discovered like minimal techno, which there was like a surge of minimal techno in about 2004. To 2000, 2003 to about 2008 and that music is the easiest thing to play in the it literally just goes bling, bong, bling, bong, bling. and I was and I basically it's the easiest thing to play it's the easiest thing to mix together and no one really knows if you're doing it right <laughs> no one has a clue it was the weirdest time. It was the weirdest time because basically, if you did it badly, people thought it was their fault, right? And if you did it, if you did it well, amazing. But like, I was generally doing it badly, and people were like, "Oh, I just don't get it. I really need to work on my music knowledge." I'm like, "You don't know. It's, I'm just not doing it very well." So that's that's basically how that's basically how we got into it. And then the, I would say the first first three years passed, and I'd, I was working like you know two nights a week, then three nights a week, then four nights a week, then five nights a week. Then I locked myself away in a in a 
in a way, in the third room of a club in Kensington, where no one was really paying attention to me, and just played three or four nights a week for 18 months. Yeah. And by the end of that, I was like off to Ibiza. Right. I had like I had a residency in Ibiza, and that's when it turned a corner. And I was like, do you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ruining everyone's night all the time. And I was actually, I, I got, I got good. Yeah. I got good. You know. So, define good. Well, or, we, or define bad because you said you know you're getting the levels all wrong so yeah. presumably that's because obviously I understand this because I have a background <laughs> in grime DJing which yeah. if you listen to the Prabs episode you'll know all about but this is for the benefit of some of the listeners who might not have the vast DJing experience that I've got kids are very rightly laughing at this so so you mentioned the levels yes. so presumably that's because um, different you're DJing on vinyl, uh, DJing at, on vinyl the time, at the time at the time I was purely CD now I'm now I'm like, if, if there's good vinyl decks, because so often they're in like state of complete disrepair. Oh, right. But if there's good vinyl decks, I'm 50-50. Right. Um, but it, at, the ch- at the time it was CDs. So is it literally a case of some CDs are recorded louder than others, and then you need to turn the volume down for that bit and louder for other ones? To be honest, almost exactly. Like, right. almost exactly. <laughs> and, but it's, um, that's, that's, the, that's the primary concern. So basically, that you you have to get your gains right. So there's levels, which is the, which when people see the fader going up and down, yeah, which yeah. you see on like produ- production you know consoles as well I'll as be doing else. some of that tonight. Oh, yes. oh yeah, yeah. But you also have gain, which is how much um, power as in electricity is being put through something. Right. So from the gain, if you get that right, you get the right color. You get the right you know all of that. It's it's almost like the color and the sound. The gain. It's, if you're pushing your gains too hard, it's when people are like, oh, this actually hurts people's ears. It's yes. psychoacoustically a problem for people. Right. And some people might not know why. They, they, they won't, they'll just be like, I hate this atmosphere, I hate this music, I hate this song. But really what it is, is it's being pushed through. So if you put a song that's already um, made for modern day laptop speakers, like a Rihanna song, let's yeah. say. Um, if you put, I'm just going an example that absolutely everyone would know, because this is actually a good example. If you put a Calvin Harris produced Rihanna song, then push the gains, it's going to feel like an assault on your senses. Right. Because it's already a, a, a modern day wall of sound. Yes. So if it's getting pushed, it's going to, it's just going to be awful. But people will just be like, oh God, this is an awful atmosphere. Yes. It really is the gains. Ah. So that's just one element. But I have to say, like DJing truly, truly, truly is almost more than 99% music choice right it really is yeah, yeah, like yeah. once you get those primary like basic skills in place yeah. everything else is is what you're putting through the system you so, can be you can have no mixing skills you can have no um, you could literally press stop press start on the next thing with yeah. a minute silent and with a moment silence in between but yeah. if you pick the, the, the right record for the moment yeah you're away so yeah. what's your what's your wham and abba what's your go-to <laughs> is it wham and abba <laughs> uh, do you know what like it's it's funny you know like i went through a phase when i first started where i was i didn't pull for any pop music whatsoever i just i just i think a part of DJing and the way I was was it was a rebellion against the mainstream right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a big part of the minimal techno thing was a rebellion against the mainstream you I don't get into D, I didn't get into DJing and some people do to play music I'd already heard but just louder right okay I want it was like discovery. very much what I'm doing yeah. <laughs> I'm so, not educating anyone tonight. no don't worry about that, don't the, worry about the, that. the warm-up to yeah. an improv show is yeah. not the time to be educating people about music <laughs> But I, I basically, I, I managed, I got into, uh, I, I got into it to find stuff. Essentially what it comes down to is I wanted to 
find stuff that people didn't know they loved yet. Right. That's, the, that's, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. The thing is, it takes you a little while to get good enough to be able to do that and not ruin everyone's night. Right, yes. So, um, so you see a lot of people who have got the best intentions at heart. They've found all these records that are wonderful, but yeah. they're playing them at the wrong times, at the wrong level, the wrong venue, yeah, to yeah. the wrong crowd, you know, in the wrong order, everything. And I was certainly doing that. So, but, but I meant well. <laughs> well, that's all right then. <laughs> and then, but, thank, but thankfully, I was just given, I was able to work and work and work to get to the point where three years later I could do it yeah, yeah, yeah. you know I'm not saying I was great but I was good yeah I was like if you booked me for your club I would you, you would people would go away going that was a good night yeah, yeah, yeah. not a great night oh, right okay and that's <laughs> important it's important to say right a good night so um, I wasn't people weren't going like oh my god my life was changed but people weren't going away going like what the hell? Why? What? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, thankfully, I was given the opportunities to get to that stage. Yeah. Because you know, I, I might never have got there if I didn't get the gigs. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 interesting because um, you obviously spent, you know, you said you had the 18 months in a particular place, but you've spent just you've just done it and you've done it and you've done it and you've yeah, done it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've got better. It's at been it. my job. It's been my yeah, absolute yeah. job. You yeah. know. And it, it's got to the point of now it's being like truly obsessive. You know, and I've went through walls of obsessiveness, which has been a really interesting um, uh, learning experience. Because going back to what I was saying about basketball, for example, I was a completely obsessive. Um, and quite often obsession to people outside of your kind of um, circle, people who might not know you particularly well, they might, people might actually worry about you. And they might, or they might mask the fact that you seem driven and on fire and alive they might want to match the fact that they're, you're reminding them that they're not quite. So they're trying to pull you back, saying yes. you shouldn't think, overthink this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't try that hard with that. Yeah. You should just forget about that. And I refuse to. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it might be the most terrible gig. I would give it my absolute everything. I'm not saying I would give up everything that I loved and I would do, you know, play like rubbish or that. I would work. I would try so hard to make it so special, and I would come up short again and again and again and again. But then hundred times down the line I'd be like oh my god I did it yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was kind of a, a little bit like that with DJ because I was working in quite quite cheesy places I did I was not a cool dude I, would, I didn't <laughs> I didn't come through like the cool dude underground places oh, yeah, yeah. and thank, well, yeah, I and, didn't see that <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. otherwise I'd have met you there wouldn't you I because yeah, that's where I was because you had a monopoly well you know you had a monopoly on the scene yeah so I just <laughs> I never and I, I rarely I'd rarely get those opportunities I mean occasionally I would but I rarely get those opportunities and and then um, and then, and thankfully now I play in the most wonderfully weird and wonderful places because I've been thrown to the wolves so many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, uh, quite often in the cool places, like um, when, especially with house music, um, it's actually people have arrived to dance. Right. Yes. Only. Yes. They haven't arrived to flirt or, or you know, or be seen or, or you know. They've arrived to dance. So you play the first song and it's just got a drum, a kick drum. Yeah. yeah. They're going to start dancing. Yeah. They, you know, they're going to start because they know what to dance. It's, it's like they, they know what the deal is. Yes. Right. Yeah. I've went to places where dancing is like fourth at best. So to get people to dance in some of these clubs, you've got to break down so many barriers. Yeah. At the, at the clubs with the house music, 
a lot of the time, I can literally get a microphone and play the spoons <laughs> and stamp my foot. Not not for the whole night, but for the first for the first two and a half minutes, and people would not know the difference. Like I could 100% do that, but because I was thrown to the wolves so many times, I could, you could send me to like a bat mitzvah in in like I don't know in you know Israel, let's say, right? You know, throw me into that situation. I've never played at a bat mitzvah in Israel. I don't know if I'd be allowed in, maybe not. But let's say I'm playing there, right? I'd be able to make it work. Right, excellent. I'd be able to make it work. I might not. Weddings? Yeah, I'd, having a gila would be like, you know, um, I'm sure I can play that. I might, that might be just for Jewish weddings. But, uh, but, uh, but now all of these things have just made me better at it. And it's a learning experience. And, and, and you can apply that to like everything. Yes. yes. There's, there's, you know, it, it can be horrible at the time. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it's going to make you better. Well, I feel that so quite often that way about uh, improv jams. It's like, right. it feels horrible at the time. But if I carry on doing it, eventually it'll feel less horrible and I may even get good at them. Yes, 100%. And I have to say, you're good at them. Thank you very like, don't, much. Don't worry about being good at them. Like, we've, we've reached that point a while, you know, a good while ago. I think like, um, but I think that's a, a, Improv Jams is a very good example. Because sometimes you'll get on for a minute. Yes, yes. If that, sometimes yeah, yeah, you won't yeah. get on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the end of it, something's went in. Yes. And it might yes. it, it might be someone that you've never met before did a thing on stage and it, it clicked something for you. Yes. And and really that's and that's that's how it is. It's like it, it does, you've just got to keep turning up and you've yes. got to keep doing it. I think you do get points for turning up. You actually yeah. do yeah, in improv. Yeah, like yeah. you do actually get points in, in for turning everything. up. Yeah. No, you do. And yeah. it, and it's 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 more so like for it's more so for nothing's ever gonna happen unless you do. Yes. So you have to turn up, yes. and then Providence can, you yes. know, get involved. Yes. You know, because Morgan Freeman won't turn up. You, you no. Know, you know. But maybe if you go out there, yeah, you will meet a metaphorical Morgan Freeman. Yes, exactly. And he will usher you into. We're all to, looking. We're all looking for a metaphorical Morgan Freeman to, to uh, <laughs> usher you, to invite you to your destiny. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you, but only if you turn up. Yes, exactly. Unless you live with Morgan Freeman. Yeah, well that's that's um, yeah. that's a that's a very small <laughs> yeah. percentage of that's probably even a percentage. It's so small the amount of people that live yeah. with Morgan Freeman. Do you know what? I've got no idea how many people live with Morgan Freeman. No, I, no, I don't either. But I'm just he might live alone at this stage. Oh, yeah, it's possible. Well, I mean, he travels a lot because he does those yeah. penguin documentaries. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, I might just do them in a vocal booth. But... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I love the idea he actually goes yeah. to the Arctic. Yeah, he's freezing. just method and yeah. he's approached. He's yeah. like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, it was too cold last time. I can't do March of the Penguins too. Do you know how hard it is to not shiver and, <laughs> talk, yeah, and talk for an hour and a half straight in freezing conditions? Yeah. Cool. Right, okay. Uh, so, uh, big finale question. Hit me. Hit me. Right. Um, what's next? What's where, next? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Well, actually, hopefully, uh, it's just occurred to me now that this might help, but um, I'm actually moving to Berlin. Really? Yeah, I'm moving wow. to Berlin in July. God. Yeah, I've um, very much fallen in love, and um, me and my girlfriend are moving to Berlin. Wow. And, yeah, it's really uh, extremely exciting. Uh, obviously, I've Googled Berlin Improv and it exists. Yes. So hopefully, I can go there and uh, be like the second person. Um, <laughs> so uh, well, hope, uh, yeah. So I've got to learn a lot about that. Um, 
So I'm moving to Berlin. I'd really love to become a part of the improv scene there, the acting scene there. Obviously, the music scene out there is huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so that's a big part of it. And, and in the meantime, once this, well, the absolute next is this play is open on Saturday. Yeah. So, um, so Hard Cross opens at the London Theatre on Saturday. I, I don't know if this will be out by then. Won't, but I will no. tweet about okay. it very much. And well, people thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah, thanks for coming. You're good. I'm not sure about the accent. If I was going to give you some. <laughs> Yeah, it started well. The accent started well. <laughs> that's all you need, just yeah. to establish the start yeah. of the accent, yeah. and then you've got it. Were you meant to be Welsh? That's, <laughs> that's the highest. That's the highest praise I can hope for. Um, so, so yes. So, Hard Cross, um, the new play Hard Cross is on at the London Theatre this Saturday and Sunday, which will be in the past by the time people hear this. But it's also where we're doing it again because it's brand new. So we're doing it again. I think I've got. It might be on at the Bread and Roses Theatre. We've been offered, but if not, it will be on again. Um, which is fantastic to do the same show again because we've already rehearsed it. Yes. So you don't need to learn a new one. <laughs> so, so, that, so that'll be on that. And so to be honest, for me, the big thing is how can I just do m more shows, get on stage more, perform more, make th more things. Um, I'd really like to be making sketches. All right, if anyone, cool. If anyone hears this from the London improv scene, if you have an idea for a sketch, if you have half an idea for a sketch, if you would like to be in sketches, if you want to, whatever it is, I'm trying to start creating a bit of a conveyor belt for sketches. Right. Whether I've written them myself or I've written them with um, a chap I'm writing with called Matt, who's tremendous. Um, we've got a little team together, we've got some cameras, we've got all this kind of stuff and we're looking to start getting going. Um, even when I move to Berlin, I want to come back here and film sketches, short films, everything. So actually that would be quite nice. If people, people can tweet me with uh, their sketches that they've done or whatever, I'd love to start you know, because I'm not on the sketch scene. Or no, whatever, no, you know, well, maybe we can help you. I don't that. know anyone. I don't know. I literally <laughs> don't know anyone. Um, yeah, so that's next, I think. Yeah. Brilliant. Kip Proudfoot, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank Yay! you so much. What a, what a treat. Thank you so much, Stuart. I really, really appreciate it. Thank, thank you for brilliant. asking me. That's really good. I really enjoyed that. I made this. That's improv. <laughs>